Go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you're just joining us, um, we're we're in a, a new series that we've begun this fall to look through the book of Philippians, the places where Paul mentions joy. And we're calling this Joy for the World, a kind of a little head start on Advent, kind of Advent for Advent, um, to remind us that God is a joyful God and, and is His image bears. He, he, he pours His joy into us through Jesus, and we have access to all the joy we could possibly want uh, through His gospel. And so we're taking a, a look at that through different, um, different lenses here in Philippians. So if you're in Philippians 1, uh, we're going to overlap a little bit with the text from last week, but we're going to focus on, uh, on what Paul is saying later on in verses 25 and 26. So I'm going to begin in verse 18, and would you please stand if you're able in honor of God's Word? And I'm going to begin the second half of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. He's referring to his imprisonment. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning that lifts up Jesus, the, uh, the, the source of our joy. And Lord, we pray that in him we would find more and more of it. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Do y'all have one of these on your phone um, where you can kind of pull up a little handy-dandy numerical device to help you add and subtract and multiply and divide and do logarithmic scales and all that fun stuff? Um, do you remember the guy, some of you who are, you know, on, on this side of, of 50 with, you know, me and the rest of you, you remember that guy in middle school who had the, the cool Casio watch with, with the little calculator on his watch? Like that was, that dude was cool. Uh, and then, you know, some of you remember lugging around your, your giant Texas instruments, like, you know, algorithmic, you know, functioning calculator that weighed two, two pounds or more. Um, your calculator, this, this little tool that we take, for instance, and now is just tiny, like, like, like a thoughtless app on your phone. Uh, somebody invented the calculator, right? Like that had to be invented. Somebody had to figure out how to do all those, those computations and come up with the, with the right numbers and so on. And I'm sure there's a lot of different schools of thought about where and, and how our modern calculators came to be. But I will tell you at least one prominent figure in the development of the modern calculator was a guy who lived in the 17th century named Blaise Pascal. And he was a prodigy. He was a genius. 
He was a genius mathematician, you know, by the age 16, coming up with a prototype for the modern calculator. And he was a philosopher, and he was a sociologist, and he was a skeptic. Like, you're not surprised, right? You know, 17th century French guy, probably a skeptic. And he wrestled with the, the claims of the church, claims of the Bible, until he was 31 years old. And that night, on November 23rd, 1654, Blaise Pascal experienced what he called a definitive conversion, and he wrote it down. He wrote down this account of his conversion. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers or of the learned, but, but certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and, and everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I not be separated from him forever. And he wrote those words down on a piece of parchment, like leather. And he pinned them on the inside of his coat so that wherever he went at all times, he had his testimony with him. The reminder of the joy that is his through Jesus. And he took that with him inside his coat for the rest of his life. Which actually wasn't very much longer. He died when he was 39 from many complicating illnesses. Is that your testimony? Uh, maybe. Some of you, you know, you, you can wax very eloquently about your mountaintop conversion experience. Um, mine was not like that, but I, I do remember kind of, you know, a similar thing of just raising the white flag. I was a skeptic for my entire freshman year at JMU and didn't have a church background, but just God just kind of kept hammering away. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm done. I give up. You're, you win. And, and I'm glad he won. Um, but some of you, you can relate to that kind of joy. Others of you, like, I don't know, I feel kind of suspicious of that. That sounds a little Pentecostal, right? A little charismatic or something, I don't know. But it's still enticing, right? That kind of joy, you know, joy, joy, joy. Jesus Christ, you know, tears of joy. Uh, what if you and I could grow in that kind of joy or even just get just a, just, just, just a taste of that? What would that do? for your walk with Jesus? What would that do for your pilgrimage you know, on this planet? Uh, Paul's talking about joy in, in Philippians, and he's, he's, he's making this comparison between the, the joy that's offered to him after he dies with Jesus in heaven. That's gain. That's, that's far better. You know, he desired that. But on, on, on the behalf of the Philippians, if he remains, he can, he can give them joy, and that's gain too. And it's a win-win for him. He's good either way. Uh, so let's talk about 
Paul's sacrificial joy, his generous joy, and then this sort of progressive joy that, that he's sharing with the Philippians. You know, he, this is a little bit of review from last week, so I'm not going to labor this, but he, he does say in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Dying is better, uh, and, and, and I prefer that. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But he says in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And it's, and it's better for your sakes if I do that. If I live in the flesh, and, and just pause right there. That's a weird expression. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. How else are, are you, do you live? <laughs> Um, I don't know anybody else you know, that doesn't have a body. But this is Paul's way of reminding us that this world is not all there is. We live in a tent. And the soul is immortal. And unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, there's going to come a day when they're going to put your body, your tent, in the ground, or it's going to go into that crematorium and no more. And we await ultimately the new heaven, the new earth, and new glorified bodies, but this body, no. But our soul is immortal. And we continue to live even after death. So where is gain for you? Where is gain for us? Is it here on this planet? Or are we piling up treasure in heaven like Jesus tells us to? And so for Paul, he understands because Jesus is his treasure that dying is going to mean more of Jesus. And so that's gain for him. That's far better for him. More of Jesus. Quantitatively, qualitatively, more of Jesus is a good thing. And that sounds great. That's gain. And that's even what he prefers, right? That's far better. But in verse 24, he says, it's better to remain in the flesh. It's more necessary on your account. It's better for you, not for me, but for you. And so Paul says he's basically torn between the two, but it's, it's, it's between winning and winning. So it's, it's a win-win for him, and he's fine. He's happy to remain, which is more necessary on, on your account. Paul says he's able to forego the, the quantitative and qualitative pleasures of heaven because he already has now in Christ a taste of what's coming, and, it, and that so fills him up already, he, he already has genuine joy enough to sustain him through the hardships of prison and all kinds of other circumstances that you can read about that were really, really rough. He's good. He's got Jesus. And his heart is kind of so enlarged with that joy and that relationship with Jesus that, that he doesn't want to keep that to himself. In fact, he's happy to remain because that means that he can share that joy with the Philippians. And they can have that same joy that he has in Jesus. Reason number one, why he's good to stay. Reason number two, why he's good to stay, is that, you know what? That's going to mean fruitful labor for me. Who, who doesn't love fruitful labor? Who, who, who of us here doesn't, you know, pull your hair out when, when the job that you've planned and, you know, you, you, you've made all, you, you made your list, you know, guys maybe, or ladies too, I'm sorry, that was sexist. You're going to Lowe's <laughs> and you've made your list and you've got your project and you, you know, you're there and then, you know, you've got the wrong size 
pipe or wrong size screw or whatever, and you got to go back to Lowe's. And it just and by the end of the day, the 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 job that you thought you were going to accomplish by the end of the day, it's just not done. It's not even halfway done. Like the the day feels lost to you. That's that just is drives you crazy. On the other hand, you have that day at work or that you know, project or, you know, you're making a meal or you've got something going on, you know, in the neighborhood or in the garage or wherever. And it goes exactly the way you planned it. That feels great. That's like job well done. And even people are patting you on the back. You go, yeah, that, I nailed it. That's fantastic. That brings you joy. Paul is experiencing the joy of bearing fruit, of having a job well done. It makes him feel good. And, and, and despite the pain, the joy makes it worthwhile. Jesus talked about this in John 16. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers her anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. And Paul's getting in on that kind of joy, that these people are being born again into God's kingdom, and they're experiencing the joy that he has in Jesus, and that just multiplies joy all around. He can't lose. It's a win-win. So, you know, is it sacrificial joy? Yeah, sure. On the one hand, uh, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. That sounds great. But it's good for you that I remain in the flesh because then you'll be able to have joy too. And that brings me joy. And so it's not so sacrificial after all, is it? But it is because of the way that generosity works, right? So in verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Can, can I just ask you to zero in with me on, the, on verse 25? Look really carefully at what Paul says when he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And then what he says next ought to surprise us. Haven't we been conditioned, like if you've been in the church for a while, here's, here's the, the, maybe where this is a liability for you if you've been in church for any period of time, but if you're new, you're hearing this with fresh ears, and so you're not kind of biased yet. But if, if you've been in the church for a while, we have a bias when we you know, hear these words of Paul, I'm going to remain and continue with you all, because we expect him to say something like, for your progress and obedience in the faith. We expect Paul to say something like, I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and your knowledge of the faith. Or I'm going to continue and remain with you all for your progress and your good works done by faith. I'm going to continue and remain with you all for your progress in sharing your faith. Those are the things that we're more accustomed, that's what we're expecting Paul to say, but what he says is none of that stuff, good stuff. It's good to obey God's word. It's good to know God's word. It's good to put God's word on display in front of others through good works. It's good to share God's word through evangelism. Those are all good things. But that's not Paul's focus here. What's his focus? 
I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your joy. That's it. Your joy in the faith. Now, I, want, I don't want us to miss how important this is, so I'm going to read this verse to you in a couple other translations because I, I, I think we need to hear this fresh. Um, the NAS and the NIV are very similar to the ESV here, but if you, if you grew up in the King James Version, you remember this verse like this. I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy in the faith. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. Then you've got some paraphrase versions of the scriptures, like the, the contemporary English version, and it goes like this. I, I like this because it puts in a little more of a colloquial language. We hear it a little more, you know, like how we would talk. And it says, I know that all of you still need me, and this is why, the, this is why I am sure that I will stay on to help you grow and be happy in your faith. That's why Paul is convinced he's going to stay. So that You'll grow and be happy in your faith. Or what about Eugene Peterson's The Message? He says, I plan to be around for a while. Thought you were going to get rid of me in this room in prison. I'm going to be around for a while, companion to you as your growth and joy in this life of trusting God continues. What kind of religion is this? This, this is not your neighbor's understanding of Christianity. I assure you. I assure you. And, and maybe, maybe you're kind of going, I didn't know it was that either. Right? Like, so what is the world, if they have a concept of God, like they're thinking of God in certain ways, and, you know, and we've got models for this too. Like what if God, what if, the, what if God up in the heavens was like some kind of elite coach who just only wanted his people to win, right? Win at all costs. And that was God's goal, to make the church a bunch of victorious people, right? What if, what if, the, what if the God who was in the heavens, you know, kind of to, to borrow some other contemporary illustrations, what if he was just this tireless boss, Whose, whose expectation was that everybody just works themselves to death for his sake, for his glory in, their, in his kingdom and so on. What if that was, what if that was God? What, or, you know, another illustration might be, what if he was just sort of this tough as nails tutor who only wanted, you know, better results? Or what if he was just sort of this egomaniac dictator who only wanted unquestioning, unyielding obedience, Right? And you can find those versions of God in all kinds of conversations with people. But just pause with me for a second and, and take stock of the fact that the, the God of the Bible, the real God, the genuine God who has spoken to us through his Son, has come in the flesh and has told us, I want my joy to be in you and that your joy might be full. That's the real God of the universe has made his purpose known to bring us joy. That's incredible. I mean, we're not discounting like working hard in the kingdom, but, but for a purpose to, to, to have more joy, to help other people have more joy. And we're not discounting victory over sin because, well, well sin's a counterfeit joy and it's a 
it's a cancer that robs us of joy. And so, yeah, we want to you know, overcome those things. But do you understand the difference? What's the goal? The goal is a joyful relationship with the one who loves your soul, who loved you and gave himself for you. And so this is the God that Paul's worshiping. This is the God that he wants the Philippians to know. And this is the God that, you know, passed away pastors like Jack Miller knew, who said famously, it is fun to be a Christian. Imagine that. So, look, um, I'm just trying to labor this point because I, I, I think we need to hear it fresh. I think we have misconceptions. I think we kind of hear a lot of static, you know, that, that gets into our head and we forget that, that the reason why, you know, Paul wanted to stay on this planet was for the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. And yeah, there's other things that, that come alongside that and help contribute to that joy and grow that joy, but don't lose sight of the, the goal, the, the big picture, right? So joy has this sort of contagiousness to it and, it, and it, and it can't help but want to include other people in its source and its origin, not exclude them. And that's why joy is fundamentally generous, right? So, you know, you've got this cheerful giver thing going on where, where Paul in another letter to the this time the Corinthians, he's talking to them about money, and don't worry, I'm not going to go off on a tithe tangent right now. Um, but he's making a collection for Jerusalem. And he says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now, Paul's talking about money here, but let's talk about joy. God loves a cheerful giver because he's able to make all grace, all goodness, all gifts abound to you. And one of the gifts that he gives us in addition to love and peace and gentleness and patience and kindness is joy. Joy. So God cheerfully gives us joy. In calling us to be cheerful givers, he wants us to model him and reflect him to the world so that the world can know that the God of the heavens, the God of the universe, the, the real one true living God is a cheerful God. He's a cheerful giver. And if he's giving joy away cheerfully, you know, well, imagine the oxymoron or the, the, the contradiction of being a cheerless giver of cheer. You know, you can't give away what you don't have and so if God's giving away joy, it must mean because he's got a lot of it to give. He's this cheerful, generous giver of joy. Can you imagine uh, a, you know, God being cheerless and, and at the same time telling us to pursue joy? That's, that's inconceivable. So Paul's sense that he's going to remain in the flesh, you know, that weird expression, uh, with the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith is really just showing us a reflection of Jesus who came in the flesh, was in, incarnate. Go to Iguana Azul and order the carne asada. You're, you're, you're getting steak. You're, you're, you're getting flesh. All of a sudden, that doesn't sound so appetizing anymore. Anyway, um, but incarnate means in the flesh. And so when Jesus comes in the flesh, he's coming for our progress and joy in the faith. 
That's what, that's what Paul's showing us. He's modeling that for us. Paul's really showing us this generous joy of Jesus. And, and I want you to do a little thought experiment with me here in Philippians 1. Take these verses, and I'm going to read them to you again, but from the perspective of Jesus. Like they, are, they really are Jesus' words, his spirit speaking through Paul. But, but now I want you to imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying Philippians 1, right? This is, in the Garden of the Gethsemane, Jesus is asking his disciples to keep watch and pray with him, and he goes over and he prays repeatedly three times, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. This, this cup of God's wrath for sin, that he's going to go to the cross that he's going to bear the sins of the world. He's going to take our punishment and our place. And it's horrific. And the thought of being separated from the love of the Father that he's had for eternity terrifies him, traumatizes him. And he's saying, yet not my will, but but yours be done. I, I know it has to be done. And so I want you to hear Philippians 1 through that lens. This is Jesus now saying, yes, and I will rejoice as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, my Father will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is to enjoy my Father, and to die is to multiply our joy in others. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, you know, the cup or not drinking the cup. My desire is to live and to be with my Father, for that's far better. But to go to the cross is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will do my Father's will for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in my Father because of my coming to you again. Right? I mean, Jesus joyfully traded places with us on the cross, taking our sin and shame so that we might receive from him his righteousness and gladness. And the very next chapter in Philippians 2, you know, if you still have Philippians 1 open, just look at the next page. In Philippians 2, verse 7, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, taking on our flesh, (laughs) becoming incarnate for our joy and progress in the faith. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then God highly exalted him through the resurrection so that we might have joy in him too, right? That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do in the flesh for our sake, for our progress and joy in the faith, the faith of knowing him by faith, having our sins forgiven by faith, having his righteousness by faith, going to him, you know, and to have that faith made sight one day. So, this is Paul's outline for like, all right, so on the one hand, I, departing in me with Christ, that's, our, that's far better, but I'm still full of joy at the prospect of helping you grow and have more joy, and that makes me happy, so I'm going to stick around. And then he talks about giving that joy away, and, and then he wraps up with this whole language of like the progress, like this progressive growth in joy. 
Paul talks about joy as something that's supposed to, to get bigger, that's supposed to mature. Um, and have you ever, you ever had those moments when you are almost out of the blue, you're kind of overcome with, with you know, giggling or joy and, and you can't stop and it's at an inappropriate time? You're at a funeral and something strikes you as funny and you can't stop snickering and everybody's looking at you. Chris Jones, I know, that's you, isn't it? I know it's you. And everybody's looking at you like, what's wrong with you? Well, can't you? Can't you grow up? Can't you control yourself? So, you know, right? You ever had that moment? Or you're in, the, you're in a, a waiting room, you know, someplace that everybody's supposed to be quiet, nobody's supposed to talk or anything, and you're on your phone and you're scrolling and you see something funny and you just burst out laughing because you can't contain it. Everybody looks at you like you're weird. Well, you're not weird. You're just having a moment of joy. That's a good thing. But they look at you like it's sort of immature. This is childish. When are you going to, you know, get some self-control or whatever? We have this weird relationship with joy. On the one hand, we treat it like it's something childish and immature. And on the other hand, we raise it up. We lift it up like an inalienable right in our Declaration of Independence to pursue happiness. We don't know what to do with joy. What does heaven think about this? What does Jesus think about this? Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change, literally the same word is repent, (laughs) unless you repent and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Drop the pretension. Drop the pretending. Drop the blaming. Drop the hiding. Drop all those grown-up behaviors and become more like a child that is trusting, that is honest, that is dependent, that is humble, that is free to cry, that is free to laugh. And grow young. Grow up by growing younger. And move into this joy. Maturing in the Christian life is becoming more childlike. And here's the little brief survey in case I'm not making sense to you. Just listen to a couple of verses from the Bible, random places in the scripture that talk about what mature Christianity looks like. And you read in places like Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Somebody who's really committed to church, really committed to worship, we got to be there every single Sunday. We're on this, you know, we're here every day, you know, whatever. But why? What compels them? Is it legalism? Is it just checking the box? Is it because what do people think? Or I got to score points with God? No, it's joy. Heck, yes, I'm going to be there because that makes me happy to be in God's presence, right? And you read places like Proverbs 31, this, this, this incredibly godly, noble, mature, strong, um, dignified woman, right? Um, Proverbs 31, 25, she's clothed with strength and dignity. This, this woman that lots of Christian women, you know, for years have been feeling, you know, uh, really, really inferior to. <laughs> she's this model of maturity. 
And she's clothed with strength and dignity. And guess what she does? She laughs at the days to come. She's, she's so confident in God's care for her and his providence and his, and his plan. And, and she's mature enough to be able to, to have joy in that. And let that be a source of laughter despite circumstances kind of going crazy around her. And then oh, for the theologians among us, right? How about from Romans 5? You know, mature Christianity is knowing our doctrine, right? Well, how about this? Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, in our PCA circles, we're kind of known for being theological snobs. <laughs> but the way to be a really mature Christian is to learn a lot of doctrine, get your theology straight. And, and, and the brow, you know, the wrinkles in our brow become more, more, more pronounced and, and we just kind of, you know, our faces start to contort like this and, and like you're, you're, the, the godliest, you know, theologians seem to be the grumpiest ones. And can I just tell you that if you're a grumpy theologian, you're not a good theologian. Paul said that if you understand what it means to be justified by faith and having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, you will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And if you want but one final picture to just put all of those into perspective, who are the most mature Christians? I'm looking at a lot of mature Christians, but who are the most mature Christians? We, we can't look laterally. You have to look vertically. The most mature Christians right now are gathered around the throne. They've experienced the great gain that Paul's describing. And you know what their circumstances are? You know what they're doing? They're joining the, the throngs, the great multitude in Revelation 19 that are singing and crying out like peals of mighty thunder, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, let us Rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. That's what the most mature Christians do. Can we grow in this? Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, your progress in the faith, to grow in this, right? Joy is a mark of progress in the faith. And the implication of this is that if your joy isn't growing, then it's tenuous to say that you're growing in the faith if your joy's not growing too. And there's, there's a way to say that that's trying to sort of leverage guilt to, to, use, to guilt you into being more joyful, but I, I kind of have a, a sense that that's not very effective, Right? But a good place to start is to just have an accurate diagnosis of where am I? Ask yourself, ask the Holy Spirit, show you where am I in this? Am I growing in joy? Am I pro making progress in joy in the faith? Mature faith wears a, a smile. It, it is happy. It laughs at the days to come. It knows that Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord, and it has Jesus now, and it's looking forward to having more Jesus, a lot more Jesus in eternity. So if you're 
if you're taking stock right now and you're going, I don't know, the joy is feeling like I'm on empty. Don't focus on joy, focus on Jesus. He's the source. And if you have more Jesus, you will have more joy. So how do we get in on this? What if I don't have this joy? What's going on? Well, you know, um, I mentioned that Blaise Pascal earlier, you know, he only had to keep that account of his conversion and his son in his coat, the inside of his coat, for only about eight more years. They did an autopsy, and there was, you know, some kind of brain issue going on. There was probably stomach cancer, you know, 16-something, 1660-something, so not a whole lot of advanced autopsy medicine going on there, but he had a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Before he died, he wrote a bunch of meditations that were posthumously published called the Pensies. One of those little meditations, he says this, I hold out my arms to my Redeemer, who having been foretold for 4,000 years has come to suffer and to die for me on earth at the time and under all the circumstances foretold. By his grace, I await death and peace in the hope of being eternally united with him. Yet I live with joy, whether in the prosperity which it pleases him to bestow upon me or in the adversity which he sends for my good. Is is this our joy? How do I get more of it? Maybe the place to start just one bit of application here. Maybe the place to start is to take stock. Have I made it a goal? Do I understand Paul remaining for their progress and joy in the faith? Is that what I understand mature Christianity to look like? Can I unapologetically make it my goal to agree with what's on the front of your bulletin every single Sunday that by God's grace, tabernacle lives for the enjoyment of his glory? Can you say, without blinking, without stammering, that by God's grace, I live for the enjoyment of his glory? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this purpose, for why why Paul wanted to remain in the flesh, for this purpose why Jesus would drink that cup, uh, this purpose uh, for why you have revealed to us this gospel and have called us to yourself, that we might exult in you, that we might rejoice and give you glory. Lord, would you have mercy on us for the places where we tend to minimize the role of joy or we think it's childish or not important? Forgive us for that, we pray. And Lord, would you send your spirit to help us, uh, especially those who are so weighed down uh, with burdens that joy just seems like a foreign language. Lord, would you bless them and help them to know that Jesus is with them and he's for them and that you are a great Savior who has promised us infinite joy to come and a foretaste of that even today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.